Mindfulness Mode 59. Anytime you are in a situation where you're in a conflict, we teach this process we call Ha Hum. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host, Bruce Langford. On Mindfulness Mode, we talk about how people from all walks of life have discovered mindfulness and how it's impacted their lives to help them become more calm, focused, and happy. Thanks so much for joining us here on Mindfulness Mode. Want more focus? Be like my guests. Be like today's guest, Dr. Gay Hendricks. Get some meditation happening in your life. I've created five free videos to help you get started at meditation. Just for you, Mindful Tribe, with simple yet inspiring video, just go to mindfulnessmode.com focus. Enter your name and email so you can get started right away. That's mindfulnessmode.com focus. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I'm totally thrilled to have Dr. Gay Hendricks with us today on the line. Dr. Hendricks, are you in mindfulness mode? I definitely am, Bruce. That's terrific. Dr. Gay Hendricks is one of the most outstanding figures in the field of relationships, transformation, and body-mind therapy. He's an author and co-author of many best-selling books, including Conscious Loving and Five Wishes. His inspiring partnership with his wife, Katie, is well-known, and he's appeared on hundreds of shows, including Oprah and 48 Hours. He's also founded the Spiritual Cinema Circle, which distributes inspirational movies to subscribers around the world. So, what's fueling your passion and your excitement in your life right now, Dr. Hendricks? Well, about five years ago, right after I finished writing The Big Leap, um, I decided to take a break from writing nonfiction books and I'd always wanted to write a mystery novel. And so I started writing a mystery novel. I fell in love with Sherlock Holmes when I was like 12 or 13 years old. And so I read every Sherlock Holmes there was. And so I decided to create a modern day Sherlock Holmes. And so I created a mystery novel about a Tibetan Buddhist private detective named Tenzing Norbu. And he goes by the nickname of Ten. And so all the, um, the books have 10 in their titles. So I wrote uh, the first one uh, about five years ago, and it's since um, morphed itself into five novels in the series. And we just sold the series to CBS to turn into a television show. So um, that's kind of been consuming a lot of my creative passions over the past few years. It's been fun to create a whole new genre for myself and uh, to create a whole new person in the form of this particular superhero, but he's a meditating superhero, you know, so he's kind of different from uh, the normal uh, type person you see on television and that kind of thing. So that's been a big passion of mine. Sure. Well, that's exciting. And I can tell you, I'd enjoy reading that. And so would my son, because my son's a very avid reader. So you've written five novels, and it must be pretty exciting to be putting this together with CBS into a television show. What's that like? Oh, boy, it's a long process. Uh, We started working on the deal in July of this past year. And it's one of those things where lots of lawyers have to be involved because there's a lot of money at stake. And so it took months of negotiating back and forth just to get this the contract done. But I believe it was in November, uh, just a few months ago, 
where we finally uh, got the contract signed. It's like a 55 page. It's like a small book. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so uh, lots of expensive lawyer hours went into it, but we finally got the deal we wanted. And now the next step is to uh, make a pilot. That'll be um, starting uh, hopefully in May this year. May is pilot season where they go into the networks and talk about what they want to do. And so hopefully we'll get our pilot made this summer and then be on the air later on the year. So We'll see. I, I've been involved with other Hollywood projects before, and so I know not to uh, count on them until I actually see them on the screen. So, uh, But everything is uh, so far looking real good. Right. Well, that certainly will be exciting. I'll be looking for that. Dr. Hendricks, I'd like to go back to your childhood and growing up and some of the things that inspired you to become the relationship coach that you became. What was your childhood like? <laughs> well, it's interesting um, because... I grew up in a family where I really didn't see any good role models for relationships. I, my mother was a widow and she never remarried. So uh, my father died while she was pregnant with me, actually into the first, uh, into the second world war. Mm. Um, and, um, so I never knew my father. So I grew up in a single parent family. Fortunately, I had, my grandparents were next door and they didn't have a great relationship, but they were very nice to me. Um, they they spent a lot of their time fighting and sniping at each other, but they were married for, I think, 63 years. And hmm. uh, so, uh, but uh, kind of relationships weren't uh, something that I thought much about when I was a kid. Uh, but I, something funny happened. I found out about a few years ago, my niece was um, down in Florida helping clean out my mother's attic after my mother passed away. And she called me up one day, my niece, and read this essay to me that my mother had saved from when I was in the 10th grade. And um, the essay was about, well, it said it, we were supposed to write a three-page essay about something we believed in strongly. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote this essay that was about why I will never, ever get married. Uh-huh. And uh, it, it was this three-page rant against marriage where I <laughs> talked about all the different relationships I saw around me. And I said that it looks like everybody is sleepwalking. If they're married, they're you know, they, they look like they're half dead all the time. And so I, um, I took it out on marriage. So isn't it ironic that here I become a relationship expert and happily married for 35 years? It is ironic. Yes, it is. And it must have surprised you when you saw that essay. <laughs> it really did. I'd completely <laughs> forgotten about it. Yeah. Well, you know, these days, the the word that we talk about is mindfulness. And that's, of course, very popular in the mainstream world. I'm just wondering what your take is on on looking at meditation and looking at living in the moment using the term mindfulness. Well, I think it's a really I'm I'm so glad that it um, has caught on in a big way. In fact, uh, you probably know Jack Cornfield. He's a friend of mine and yeah. a mindfulness teacher. Yes. And I, I emailed him um, a year or so ago. I, I, I said, uh, oh, I know what it was. It was there was an article on mindfulness was on the front cover of Time magazine. Yes. And so I sent an email to Jack and I said, isn't it great after 5,000 years that it's <laughs> finally getting some attention? Uh, and so um, the – I'm so glad that the idea of mindfulness is coming to the forefront because being present, as you probably know from reading uh, some of our books, uh, we coined this new term presencing, which is a verb, which is an act of being present. 
And so one of the main things we teach in our seminars is what we call presencing, which is very much the same thing as mindfulness. Um, I've had the pleasure also, uh, I learned to meditate when I was a graduate student at Stanford in 1971 or two along in there. And um, I haven't missed a day since. So I have a 40-some year meditation streak going. And it's one of the most important, valuable things that I do in my life. My wife also is a long-term meditator too. And so we've been meditating together for 30-some years. And it really makes for a, a, a kind of a serene backdrop to whatever we do. Well, it's very inspirational that you've been meditating so long. What would you say to someone who would like to start meditating, but they feel there's something holding them back, or it's the stigma, or it's you know something about that word? What would you suggest to them? Well, I think that any new thing sometimes brings up anxieties. Um, you know, I remember my grandmother, who lived next door to me, getting really uh, frantic because uh, they were installing a refrigerator rather than the old ice box that she had where a guy had to come and bring a block of ice and put in it. <laughs> and this is back in 1950 or so. And I think she was the last person on the block to get an electric refrigerator. But I remember it caused a lot of anxiety in, in her, you know, like, oh, no, uh, you know, uh, what if this electricity gets out of the refrigerator and runs around the house? <laughs> you know, she was so concerned about the electricity getting out of the out of the box, I guess. And so, um, so I think any new thing like that is going to bring up sometimes some fears and anxieties. But you know, it's just like if you've been taking baths all your life and suddenly you have access to taking a shower. Uh, you know, it's a whole new thing. So I think that uh, the important thing is just to look at whatever you're afraid of, what's the real underlying fear of it, and um, and deal with that. You know, most of the time these fears and anxieties are just things in our head. You know, we don't need to actually be realistically afraid of it. Right, right. And we have so many different kinds of fears. I want to talk to you about vulnerability. That That's something that we have a lot of fears about. It's, it helps us grow. It helps us connect with each other. And in relationships, it can really help improve them. What are your thoughts on vulnerability? Well, my thoughts are shaped by having been a relationship counselor for you know decades. So what I see is that when people become more vulnerable, when they let down their barrier, when they let down their guard, and share openly about whatever they're afraid of or whatever they're sad about or whatever they're angry about, a whole new world opens up to them because it's, it's, it's like um, human beings are like a big mansion that has a bunch of locked doors in ourselves. And some of the rooms are open, but some of the rooms are locked for various reasons. And successful living is partly about lovingly opening those doors to the fullness of yourself. So you have to open the door to your emotions and get so you can say, I'm angry or I'm scared or I'm sad without making it a big deal because it isn't a big deal because human beings have been having emotions for hundreds of thousands of years. And the only question is whether we share those with other people or not. I remember one of the uh, big war heroes from the Persian Gulf War, General Schwarzkopf, said, any man who can't cry scares me. 
And I really appreciated that because here's this kind of big, tough fellow, you know, big burly guy, and he'd been in combat and been a general and all of that. And yet he's appreciating the vulnerability even among people who are supposed to be professional tough guys. And so I think that um, opening ourselves to the fullness of ourselves is going to help us create more loving energy around us wherever we are, whether it's at home with our beloved or whether it's at work or in sports or wherever. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk about limitation. In your book, The Big Leap, Conquer Your Hidden Fear and Take Life to the Next Level, you talked about that and you said in your life, you've discovered that if you cling to the notion that something's not possible, I'm arguing in favor of limitation. And if I argue for my limitations, I get to keep them. So how can we once and for all free ourselves from the mindset of limitation? Well, I remember reading one time that back in the 1900s, I think it was somewhere around 1830 or 1840, there was this learned article published in one of the medical journals. At the time, they were in the process of creating a new type of engine, a steam engine for um, trains that made them go at faster and faster speeds. And there was this article in one of the medical journals that said, the human body would explode at faster than 40 miles per hour so that they shouldn't develop a train that went any faster than this because it was widely known that the human body would explode at those kinds of speeds. (laughs) Well, as we all know, we don't. And Uh so um, usually limitations are artificially put in place just by belief. Like I remember being a kid, I think I was seven or eight years old, and it made all the newspapers when a fellow named Roger Bannister broke broke the first four-minute mile. He ran a mile in under four minutes. And I remember seeing the newsreels of it, and he collapsed at the end of it and, you know, it was kind of had to be carried off. Well, now people run four-minute miles all the time and don't collapse at the end of them. Right. you know, it became no big deal after a few people did it. And so I think that we need to think of our limitations largely as inventions of ourselves. You know, there are some obvious limitations in the material world, like, you know, no matter how I might go out in my backyard and flap my arms, I'm not going to be able to soar as well as an eagle or a hawk. Right. Uh, so I have built-in limitations on that level. So, But most of life's truly interesting things don't have any limitations built into them. Like there is no upper limit on how happy you can be as a human being. Those are only self-imposed by how much permission we give ourselves in our mind. You know, like Mark Twain said that he discovered that people are about as happy as they make up their minds to be. Yes. And I think that that's very empowering in a way because it tells us that we have a lot more control over things in our life than we might ordinarily think. 
Yes, that's true, isn't it? One of my mindful tribe questions for you today, I put out a request for questions, and they they said, were you ever teased or harassed about having the name gay? And of course, there's a lot of homophobia out there. So I'm just curious about what you have to say about that. Oh, no. Well, I grew up in a time where, in the South where I grew up, that was a not an uncommon name. Um, in fact, I was named for my father. Um, so, but I did get teased a lot because I was real fat as a kid. Uh, I have that in some of my books if, if you want to know the whole story. But the, the short form of the story was pretty much from the moment I was born, I was fat. I was one of those real fat babies. And then mm-hmm. I was taken around to different medical specialists when I was a kid to try to figure out why I was obese because everybody else in my family was skinny. And it turned out to be a whole bunch of different things wrong with my endocrine system. But I never really got it handled until I was in my 20s. And so I got teased a lot when I was a kid because of my weight, especially when it got to be in junior high school. I think Mm -hmm. (laughs) junior high school is probably... uh, as I recall in any way, sort of the peak of uh, people teasing and bullying each other. Yes. Yes, it still is. And I've worked in bullying prevention for around a decade. And, and I'm just curious about what advice you have for people who are bullied. And if you have a story about bullying where mindfulness would have really made a difference. Well, I remember when I was in the seventh grade, particularly there was a kid named Phil Koss, I remember his name, um, who used to really, what I, I didn't think of it as bullying at the time. He was just always teasing and taunting me and that kind of thing. And there were a couple of other kids like that too. And I remember once trying to, he hit me and I uh, tried to hit him back. And then he hit me back in such a way that it was much harder than I'd ever been hit before. And so I learned right away that that was, an unmindful and destructive way to try to handle things like that. So um, what I, I think helped me was realizing that somebody who bullies another person is operating out of fear. They're not necessarily a bad person. They're just afraid of something, you know, like a person yes. if they taught another person about their sexuality or homophobia or something, it's obviously because they have some insecurities about their own sexuality down in there. Otherwise, they wouldn't want to focus on that in other people. Same thing if you taunt another person because of their race. It doesn't say anything about the person you're taunting. It says a great deal about where you're coming from inside yourself, your own fears and anxieties. And so I think that's the way I began to look at it, that this person was in a way hurting worse than I was and uh, that if they felt the need to taunt me in any way, that was sort of their business, their hatred, their fear, but it didn't really have anything to do with me. And so I kind of learned, I think maybe sometime by the time I got into high school, that it was – they were irrelevant to me. It didn't have anything to do with how I was about myself. Yeah, that's a great lesson. It really is. I want to talk about your meditation specifically. You mentioned about how you and your wife meditate every day. What specifically does your meditation look like? How long is it? Is it 
you know, what form do you take with it? I'm just curious. Yes. Well, um, I went through a couple of phases with that before I found the meditation that I really liked best. I did some training at a Zen monastery back around early 70s, and I did some um, training with just using breath as a meditation. And then I learned TM, which was a mantra meditation. And then I learned several advanced forms of that over the years. And that's the one that really works well for me. So I use a mantra um, and I usually uh, meditate for oh, around 20 minutes or so twice a day, sometimes a little longer, sometimes a little shorter if I'm on an airplane or something like that. Um, but um, I would say all in all, if you put all of my meditation stuff together, it probably takes a little under an hour a day, but broken up into two um, segments. And what I do is I do some stretching and that kind of thing. And then I um, get my breathing centered and then I meditate for about 20 minutes or so using the mantra. And so it's, um, it always produces the same effect after 10 or 15 minutes or so. I feel this big stillness come upon me inside and a, a big open space of transcendence develops. And so that's, I think the, you know, if you're like me, I like to have that something I can feel clearly inside um, as as in my meditation. And that's the feeling that I get inside every time I do it, is that kind of big, open, spacious, at ease feeling. Yeah, that's a great feeling. I meditate for around 20 minutes at a time as well. So that's interesting to hear that. I'm sure that you have a lot of examples about how meditation and mindfulness has really helped you and improved your life. But was there ever a time when you really had a challenge with it? Not really. I, I think the challenge is was early on was just developing the discipline of doing it every day um, because I, um, you know, I found it because at the time I learned meditation, I was so incredibly busy. I didn't have much money and I was living on a small fellowship at Stanford and I was, you know, working a part-time consulting job. And at the time I was also a single parent. Uh, my daughter was like four years old at the time. And so I, um, I really was harried and mm -hmm. I always found time to meditate. And the more I found the time after a while, I no longer had to even think about it. Just like, you know, I don't need to think about or make myself take a shower it's just something I do because it feels good and the effects of it are great and um, it always works for me. And so meditation is kind of like that for me. I, I wouldn't think of not doing it just like I wouldn't think of not brushing my teeth or not taking a shower or not telling my wife I love her. Right, right. I was just watching you on a video before we got on the call and you were talking about humming and how humming unifies the two sides of your brain. We've really discovered a lot about the brain in recent years. And what, have, what do you have that you could share with us about our more recent discoveries of the brain? Well, specifically regarding the hum thing, um, we teach in our seminars a simple way to get out of an argument or get out of projection um, most arguments between people, you know, one person is projecting something onto the other person and then the other person is projecting something back. And so anytime you are in a situation where you're in a conflict, we teach this process we call ha-hum, which is 
if you catch yourself in the act of blaming somebody like, ha, you know, ha, I've got you or ha, I know what you did wrong. Instead, shift to, hmm, how did I contribute to this? Hmm, what was it about me that required this particular argument? Hmm, what can I learn from this? So the moment you shift into, hmm, like a a sincere moment of wonder, that experience of, hmm, that wondering moment of curiosity shifts you out of blame and criticism and makes it possible to solve the conflict. And so I think that, um, and where I was really heartened was when I saw that research about um, things that unify both sides of the brain, you know, like something like just going, hmm, has a, you know, it's not exactly language, it's not exactly song, so it puts things together in your brain. But one of the reasons we we teach the hmm formula is because if you make a genuine, sincere hmm with that kind of wonder tone, it shifts you out of whatever conflict you're in. And it's interesting how that does make you feel when you do that, isn't it? It really is. It gets you out of that blame and criticize mode. Yes, yes. And that's so important to do to to move away from that. And so in relationships, when you meet with someone and they're having conflicts and they're not able to they're not able to resolve their difficulties, what are some of the first things you do with them? One of the first things we do, Bruce, is we ask them to make a series of what we call co-commitments. In relationship, you get what you're committed to getting. And we found that commitment, you know, especially like marriage vows, are often commitments to the wrong things. You Like if you commit to love and obey and honor somebody forever, well, that's a, that's a noble idea, but it doesn't handle the key things about relationship. Like, are you actually committed to being honest with the other person? Are you committed to sharing truths with the other person? Are you committed to listening without judgment to the other person? Those kinds of things are what we ask couples to commit to. Uh, we... You can find a lot of that in our book, Conscious Loving, which is the subtitle of it is The Journey to Co-Commitment. And so there are all the commitments that we recommend spelled out in our book, Conscious Loving. Our new latest book is Conscious Loving Ever After, which is uh, for couples and singles from 40 and up. So people in the second half of life, that there are ways that people in the second half of life need to know how to to create thriving relationships that necessarily aren't as important in the first half of life. So the commitment is the first important thing that we do. So we ask people to make brand new set of commitments to each other. A second thing we invite people to do is to go on a blame and criticism diet. In other words, to make a commitment to creating a relationship that's free of blame and criticism. And that sounds like an outrageously tall order. And many people say that when they first hear us talk about that. But it's actually something that can be done. And the more you do it, you, you're, you're just amazed by the amount of good feeling that comes in the relationship as you eliminate blame and criticism. 
Yes. And I think that, you know, so many people have a feeling that they're being honest, but when they really get right down to it, that honesty isn't really genuine. Do you find that? Yeah, because people don't realize what they need to be honest about. Like, they, sometimes people think that expressing a loud opinion is the same thing as being honest and open. Well, you know, if I said, you're a total jerk, well, that's not anything honest. That's a loud opinion. Um, what's honest would be if the person got underneath that and said, I'm feeling afraid right now or I'm feeling angry right now, or I feel hurt, something that you could point to in your body. And so oftentimes, in fact, in couples counseling, we ask people to pause from talking for a couple of minutes and just point to different places in their body where they feel certain feelings. And typically, like there are three main feeling zones that people typically point to. A lot of us experience our fear down in our bellies. So when we ask people what they're experiencing, they may point to their belly. They're pointing toward butterflies in their stomach or a tight stomach. Uh, if they're pointing at their chest, it's usually something they feel sad or hurt about. If they're pointing at their jaws or their shoulders or the back of their neck or their back, it's usually because there's something they're angry about. And so we invite people to kind of get underneath the words to the real thing. And that often, in a, in a couple of minutes, people can break out of old patterns that they've been stuck in, sometimes literally for decades. We've had couples here who have been basically having the same argument for 20 or 30 years. And it just happens over and over and over again, and they've never f found out how to get underneath it, and so it doesn't ever happen again. Right. Really fascinating. Dr. Hendricks, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who's one person who has influenced you in your mindfulness practice? I would say um, when I first started thinking about spiritual kinds of things, I had the pleasure of of going to a number of lectures by Krishnamurti, J. Krishnamurti, who is an Indian philosopher and teacher that he passed away about 1986. But I had the great good fortune of hearing lots of his lectures in the early 70s and mid-70s. And one thing he said was, if you can't meditate on a subway, you can't meditate. And that really stuck in my mind because he was really all about paying attention to what was going on in this moment. And he thought of kind of whole life meditation that we, we could turn our whole lives into a meditative practice. And so that would probably be the person I would make mention of most. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? When I first began my mindfulness practice meditation 40 years ago, I don't think I knew anything about my emotions. And I think meditation has opened up a space in which I can really feel my emotions. Like right now, if I felt sad, I could feel it in my chest and I could say, I'm sad. I wasn't able to do that 40 years ago. I remember somebody once asking me back then, was I angry about something? And I said, no. You know, now I would immediately say, yeah, because I was angry about it. But I had a lot of energy invested in being defensive back then. 
Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. Well, I've written a whole book on breathing called Conscious Breathing. Yes, I know. And I, uh, I'm a big fan of breathing. I, I won't bore you with the long details of how I came to be a big fan of breathing, but I discovered that oftentimes clients and myself, when we were trying to cut off emotions in ourselves, would cut off our breathing. We would hold our breath or restrict our breathing. Whereas if we open our breathing up and take full, easy breaths, we can be much more aware of our emotions on a moment-to-moment basis. So I use my breathing kind of as a barometer of exactly how I'm feeling. If I feel a a big, open, easy flow of breathing, that usually tells me that things are going on really well. But if I feel myself clamping down and not breathing as much, it's because usually there's some something I'm anxious about that I haven't opened up to or some some worry I have that I haven't gotten clear about. And so I use my breathing as a powerful barometer. Well, Dr. Hendricks, you've written so many fantastic books, but if you could recommend a book on mindfulness, what would it be? Well, let's see. It's been a while since I've actually read a whole book on mindfulness. Um, uh, Of my books, I would probably recommend The Conscious Breathing Book or The Big Leap because both of them have essential things. Um, I remember Jack, uh, we, uh, Jack Cornfield is a friend of ours, and uh, he, he wrote a book once um, that I admired a lot called A Path with a Heart um, that I, I admired quite a bit. So that's the first one that springs to mind. Thank you. If you could share an app which helps you to be more mindful, what would that be? Well, any of the apps at my app business, which is called supermindapps.com, we have an app there that is especially about learning to love yourself, which is particularly great and makes use of breathing. So uh, just uh, go, go look at any of the apps at supermindapps.com because that's where we put all of the apps that we find most valuable. Perfect. What advice would you give a person who is new to mindfulness and would like to start using it in their life? I would say anything you can do, just take 10 minutes wherever you are. And just pay attention to your breathing. Even if you're sitting on a subway, take 10 minutes and just pay attention to what your breathing is doing. Don't try to particularly make yourself breathe any which way. Just take a moment to tune in and notice. And then you can certainly get more elaborate with meditation if you want to use a mantra or take specific training in it. That's a really good thing also. But I think just in the beginning, having the willingness, the courage to pay attention to yourself. You know, the philosopher Blaise Pascal many hundreds of years ago said that all of our problems as human beings could be cured if we could sit in a a room by ourselves for 10 minutes doing nothing. Hmm. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, and so he has a really good point there. Yeah, it is a good point. Dr. Hendricks, it has been such a pleasure to spend this time with you today, and I'm certainly honored to have you on the show. How can Mindful Tribe get a hold of you or learn more about what you do? Well, they can always stop by our big website, hendricks.com, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S.com. There's lots of resources there, videos and different things we've done. We also have a, um, a Facebook page that's very popular uh, called Hearts in Harmony. And it's where we showcase a lot of our relationship work. So people can go to the Hearts in Harmony website or the Hearts in Harmony Facebook page and uh, learn all sorts of things about us. Perfect. 
Well, like I said, it's been really tremendous. Thank you so much. All the best to you, Dr. Hendricks. Thanks a lot, Bruce. Have a great day. I will. Bye now.